Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday morning. Uh, and I didn't find a sponsor for today, but I'm going to do anyway, try to keep my schedule. Uh, I was sending a list of all the names of the artists this week, and the only one I could think as realistic, well, very daunting, was Sadigon. Um, I hesitate to do this because it's a very hard Parsha. We know very little when it comes to the history of Sadigon. It's very confusing, but I'll give it a shot. You probably know less than I, so give it a shot. Um, we're dealing with, over here with somebody, unlike the ones I've been talking about most of the time, it's one of the Gaonim, Sadi Gaon. Now, today you use the word Gaon as a title of somebody's real smart, but a thousand years ago, or more exactly, 1,200 years ago, 1,300 years ago, a Gaon was a very specific title, which means the Rosh Hashiba, one of the two leading yeshivas, uh, which are located in Baghdad. It's an old story. Uh, and that's right, the same Baghdad's ahead of Iraq today. And uh, these are the two yeshivas where the Gemara was made, in Surah and Pumbadisa. I think many of you know that. And uh, these two yeshivas, not the only yeshiva, but, you know, like, for example, Rabashi was in Surah, in Matsumakasio. So, uh, these two yeshivas came the elite uh, yeshivas, and frankly, probably the only place where the Gemara was really well studied for a number of centuries due to the history of how the Talmud evolved. Because once upon a time, my friends, there was no such thing as a Gemara. It's a created document, right? I mean, you know, the people in the Gemara lived at a certain time. Time of David and Melch, there's no Gemara, right? So, by the time the Talmud uh, was published, if I can use that terminology, because there was no uh, printing press by the time it came to be written, and all that stuff. So, uh, assuming it was written in the way we understand it, uh, the main place in the world where they understood this was in Baghdad. Isn't that interesting? So basically, the Talmud Bavli uh, is from Babel. Babel is what you and I today call Iraq, Babylonia. Uh, this area in the 600s, came to be conquered by the Arabs, who busted out of Arabia, what you and I call Saudi Arabia today, after the death of Mohammed, and conquered a Jagundo empire, I mean, one of the greatest empires ever, from uh, the Atlantic Ocean to uh, India. It's pretty big. Okay? And uh, the place they called it was, uh, they called, the head was the Caliph, the Caliph from Khalipin, you know, the successor of Mohammed. And basically this was the emperor, the Arab emperor. And it's a big empire. And uh, originally the capital of this empire was in Damascus. And by the time you get to our story, they switched dynasties. And the empire, which was huge, was in Baghdad. Now, uh, Baghdad happened to be the place the Arabs set up shop. And it became the number one city in the world. And probably was like New York City in its day. Not like, you know, it, it was uh, because it was the headquarters of a giant empire and a huge palaces, 
and, uh, you know, government bureaucracy and things like that. And uh, Baghdad is in the heart of Iraq, uh, not far from where the capital of Iraq used to be in the time of the Gemara. In the time of the Gemara, the um, Bavel, the place where Amarayim lived, was part of what we call the Persian Empire. Persians are Iranians. But the Persians had their headquarters, their capital, at Ketesiphon, or as the Gemara sometimes calls it in the Jewish corruption, Akhtisphon. You may remember the Gemara in Gittin, is it? Ardashir to Akhtisphon and all that. So in other words, the Persians had their capital all the way to the west of their empire, in what we call today Iraq. And Akhtisphon was a huge city, once upon a time. And the Jewish uh, neighborhood in Akhtisphon was called Mechoza. You see, you're starting to hear some of these names, but you don't know where they're from. And Masa Mechoza, and Mechoza had a large Christian community, a large Jewish community, and that's how things operate. Well, when the Arabs came along, all that fell apart, but 20 miles north, they made a city called Baghdad. The Gemara, Baghdad's mentioned the Gemara also, but not as a big place. But in the time of time, it became a huge place, and they ran a gigantic empire from there, and became a headquarters of, of knowledge, of art, of Islam, of course, Arab stuff, and a lot of Jews moved there, because that's where the business is. Just like today, people move to a place where there's a lot of business going on. Uh, so, Jewish cities like Akhtisphon and, and Mechoza and Sur and Pumbadisa eventually came to be abandoned as the Jews moved 10, 20, 30 miles away to Baghdad. We don't know where Sur and Pumbadisa or Nardaya is today. But we know they're, like I said, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles somewhere from Baghdad. That's, that's where we used to live once upon a time. So uh, what happened was that the yeshiva in a place called Sur and the yeshiva in a place called Pumbadisa moved at one point to Baghdad. And so you had a situation where the two yeshivas are in one city. So, um, and they kept the original name because of the cachet that went along with it. We have the exact same thing today. The Panovich yeshiva is not located in Lithuania Panovich. It's located in Bnei Brak. The Mir yeshiva is not located in the town of Mir, which I was there in, in Belarus, but it's located in Yerushalayim or Brooklyn. The Yeshiva of Tells is not located in the city of Tells in, in Lithuania, but it's located, as you all know, in Cleveland, and so forth. The same way, the Yeshiva Sur and Pomodisa relocated to where the money was at, to the New York City of that time, and that was Baghdad. Here you had two Yeshivas, and whoever was the Rosh Yeshiva, one Yeshiva was called the Gaon, and whoever was the Rosh Yeshiva, the other one called Gaon. Those are the only two Gaonim, right? So the term Gaon doesn't mean somebody's very smart or learned, but it means an official title. Now, the Gaonim were in the six, seven, eight, nine, ten hundreds in those years. And at that time, the Gemara was uh, highly centralized. Not many people understood it. And so, how would they? And so, I don't want to get on a whole disquisition. It'll take me an hour. So, I'll just say, if you want to really know how to learn, you probably went over there. Or else you hooked up with somebody who must have learned over there. Now, the two yeshivas ran century after century the way they do now. It's a family business. You understand? Got to marry the right girl, got to be related to the right person. It's a family business. And so the same 5, 10, 12 families, something like that, where the Rosh Hashivas, or the deputy Rosh Hashivas, or the third person, you know, the same way it is now. In other words, a lot of nepotism. On the other hand, nepotism doesn't mean that the person doesn't know how to learn, but on the other hand, it means that if his last name wasn't this or that and the other, he wouldn't have gotten a job. Keep that in mind. Um, it's a very famous example, for example, the Shiltos Rabbi Chaigon. I think many of you have heard of the Shiltos. Uh, 
which one of the first farm ever. And Rabbi Chai is called Shultus Rabbi Chai Gom. But really it's a misnomer, because Rabbi Chai was the, the smartest guy, but he couldn't get the job, because he wasn't related to the right people. And uh, the big, richy rich guy, the uh, Reish Galusa, put in somebody he wanted, he was friendly with. And uh, Rabbi Chai Gom had to leave and move to Israel and so forth. So that was the politics of that era. In addition to that, you also had the Reish Galusa, who was the leader of the Jews, not from the Torah point of view, but from the Yichas point of view, from David Melech. In Judaism, we have never worked out proper political relations. That's one thing that I've mentioned as many times. The Torah is very unclear, you know, of any pecking order. Who who goes first? The king, the Rosh Hashiva, this, that, and the other. And um, these were reflecting on a lot of tensions that rose from time to time in Baghdad. That's all I'm going to say about the historical era. So Sadiagom means that this guy named Sadia is eventually, in the course of his career, going to become the Rosh Hashiva either of Surah or the Rosh Hashiva of Pumadisa. Otherwise, he wouldn't call Sadia Gom. And as we'll see, he became, at one point in his life, uh, frankly, he wasn't old. He was around 40, uh, no, about 45. He became the Rosh Hashiva of Surah. That, that, so that's, a, that's why he called him Sadia Gom. But Sadia was a guy before that. Uh, He's a person who lived to be only 60 years old. He was born in 882. So I'm taking it from a different era. Usually I'm talking about people lived in the early modern period. I see a lot of them or the Middle Ages or something. This is before the Middle Ages, if I can use that terminology. Um, this is the early Middle Ages in the uh, 7, 8, 9, 10 hundreds. And Sadegon lived in the 8 and 9 hundreds. Uh, so if he lived to be 60s, it's 882 to 942 in those years. That's a long time ago, okay? What do we even know about? We know very little about Jews going at that time. It's before the Rishonim. I'll say it again, before the Rishonim. And um, Sadigon lived there for, in the time, what they call the Abbasid Caliphate, and the Arabs ruled the world. Well, it was starting to fall apart. Without boring you with all the Arab history, the, uh, the Arabs had this huge empire, but by the time Sadigon came along, it started to fall away. This province declared independence. So, for example, in the time of Sadigon, the old Persia broke away from the caliphate and went into their own business. They set up a Persian uh, Arab situation, you know, uh, without giving you the details, and North Africa and so forth. But there was still plenty left over. Okay, so Sadigon lives in an Arab world. He talks Arabic. He's from Jew, obviously, but the culture is all Arabic. And what was going on in the Arabs at this time? Intellectually, a lot. This was called the Golden Age of the Arabs, in which um, various people who lived in the Arab world, maybe they're Muslims, maybe they're Christians, maybe they're Jewish, uh, but just like you and I speak English, even though we may be from Jews, so at that time it was in Arabic, and uh, science, mathematics, uh, astronomy, history, geography, magic, all kinds of sciences as they were understood in those days were flourishing in the time that Sadiagon lived. He just lived in a very interesting period. Now, Sadiagon is from Egypt. That's the, that's the funny thing. He was an outsider. And that's like a key to his career. Because in Baghdad, if you were in the yeshiva world, it's just like today, a very narrow, uh, narrowly educated, very narrow focus. Uh, the people in the yeshiva world, like today, is gemar, gemar, gemar. That's all. They weren't interested in anything else. They tried to ignore everything else. It kind of worked when it worked. And uh, if it didn't work for people, it didn't work for people. 
And uh, that's how the Yeshivas went on and on. Now, um, I'll say it again, you know, not Ivrit, not the Gamarna. I would use it for use a modern terminology, zero Haskalah. It's just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. Now, uh, on the other hand, Judaism had a lot of issues. Uh, let's put it this way. The Karaites were very big at that time. They, they, the Karaim were the people who said, where did Gemara come from? Not that long ago, there was no Gemara, which is true. And all of a sudden, you guys popped up with this new set of books, new set of rules everybody followed. We think you're full of baloney, right? You come and these rabbis, Tanoim, Mamrem, who the heck are they, right? After all, there was a Judaism before they existed, before the rabbis existed. Now, the rabbis said, well, but the Judaism before he existed all said a Tarsha And the Kari said, baloney. So it was an interesting time to be Jewish. Uh, in addition to what I just said, there were, uh, how should I put it? There was the beginnings of a of Reform Judaism and a Haskalah. There really was. Um, there was a guy, Chivi Al-Balki, who was some Jewish guy from Afghanistan, or the eastern uh, Iran, not the western Iran where most of us know the Iranians from today, you know. Tehran, and Isfahan, and those kind of places. Well, the other side, the primitive side. And the guy wrote a very popular book that got co- copied all the time, but got very popular, basically called uh, A Reform Attack on Judaism. <laughs> 200 uh, proofs that the Torah is not true. You know, a lot of contradictions in the Mikra and uh, things that seem silly. And it got a lot of traction at that time. What can I tell you? And so the Judaism was scattered all over the place. A lot, most people didn't know how to learn. They, uh, if they were from, they followed the Gaonim and uh, Gaonim because she was in Baghdad, used to write them questions all the time. They themselves didn't know how to learn much. Um, there were a lot of confusion going on. Uh, the Karaites were always making fun of the Jews. They're all around. You know, your next door neighbor might be a, a Karai. That's, that's how it was at that time. And now you got these left-wingers bringing in what we would call rational um, skepticism, uh, modern uh, 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 mockery. Of the Torah of and the Torah of Apep. Uh, and uh, it got a lot of traction. So there's a lot of confusion among the Jewish religion. Remember, Judaism is in third place. First comes Islam, then come the Christians, then come the Jews. The Jewish religion is mocked by both the Muslims and by the Christians for their own reasons. I, they have silly things about their part, but that's not the issue. You know, I'm talking about the 8900, so they're making fun of the Jews. So you can totally understand a lot of Jews. If you weren't from the inner circle that just did Gamar, Gamar, Gamar all the time, so you might have all kinds of scuff issues, you might uh, be not great in, in all your practices. It was an interesting time to be Jewish. Plus other issues. Uh, so Sadia was born in Egypt, and I told you I was hesitant to speak about him because, honestly speaking, we don't know that much about him. So a lot of speculative that you read among the historians. But he is a very, very important figure because he started a lot of writings and started a lot of movements in Judaism, as I'll try to explain without going too, too much barichas. So here's somebody who lives, by, as far as I know, the first 20, 25 years of his life, 20 years, 25 years of his life in Egypt. What does that mean? And obviously, if this is somebody who could become a Gaon, a Rosh Hashiva in Baghdad, then even though he didn't learn in the Baghdad Yeshivas, he must have hooked up with somebody that knew how to learn. You know what I'm saying? The only way he could have got into learning Gemara and, uh, you know, and, and thrived in it was if in Egypt he met people who had graduated from the Yeshiva and for one reason or another took up, maybe it was a Dayan or something like that in Mitzrayim. 
That's very, very possible. And all we know is that Sadi was a genius. And so he became a bucking shas, as we would say today. Remember, he lived before the Rishonim, you know. And uh, he was a major scholar. Look okay? major scholar, post taking all the rest of it. But it's also true that the guy did not learn in Yeshiva. Here we have the interesting phenomenon uh, that we see a lot of times in which, you know, some of the greatest people didn't come from Yeshivas and therefore they weren't sort of stifled by the regimentation of cookie cutters imposed by the Yeshiva system. Can't help it. Yeshiva's a system, you know. He's an outsider. That's very interesting. And so um, I can only imagine, and all he can do is imagine we know for any proof. Here's a guy who lived in Egypt. As I say, he must have known one or two or something like that of Talmud Chacham who had learned in Baghdad or someplace like that. And that's how he went through Shas. And he was a genius, you know, Chazar and, and all that Iyun. And, uh, you know, I mean, to put the Shas together. But in addition to that, he had total freedom to indulge in any other subject that engaged his interest. And we know that um, he was interested uh, in, uh, let's put it this way, in Tanakh. I don't know how he got interested in Tanakh, but he was in Ivrit. These are not yeshivas your things. Um, eventually, in Hashkafa matters in philosophy, he uh, had a shaykhus with the person I would say would be the number one from Moscow of his time, which was Isaac Israeli. It's a Israeli. I know you never heard of him. Um, this is these are, in other words, let's put it this way: these are people who are trying to think about Judaism philosophically, which ain't yeshivish at all, right? To try to interpret the Torah through the philosophical lens, which is one of the ways of doing it. It's not the only way of doing it. It's one of the ways of doing it. And uh, Yitzhak Israel was a from guy, like I said before, but he's trying to comprehend the Torah through a, through philosophical principles. Um, he, uh, uh, was interested in Kabbalah, believe it or not, in mysticism. There's a person with a very wide set of interests. It's very fascinating. Now, I can only speculate that maybe the guy made fun of the Jews because they don't know their own Torah, which is, as you and I know, is true. Um, you know, none of us want to run into a missionary, most of us, because you wouldn't know what to answer. Uh, they made fun of the Arabs, always talking about how great the Arabic language was, which they did write about all the time. And the Jews don't know of it. Things like that. Um, so he's a person of very wide education, the yeshivas plus the non-yeshivas. That's what makes Sadiqon so unusual. See, there were lots of Gonin, dozens of them, uh, which you would expect if you go through the 600s, the 700s, the 800s, 900s, 1000s. That's a lot of Rosh Hashivas. Especially, usually, they were elected when they were old. They didn't last too long. So uh, Sadiqon is, is the unique. It stands out. Why does he stand out? Because he wasn't just yeshivas. Now, I didn't say he wasn't un-yeshivas. That would make him somebody different. That would make him a typical Moscow. He's somebody who is both yeshivish and un-yeshivish. That's what makes him so fascinating. When he's around 20 or something like that, like I said before, he left Egypt and he moved to Israel and Syria, best as I can tell. Um, so this would be in the early 900s. He was born in 882. So figure approximately from 902 to what, 920, something like that. Uh, he was living in Israel and in Syria. Very possibly, that was a good place to go learn. In other words, you, you, greater scholarship. Here we come to the very interesting question 
What the heck was going on in Eretz Yisrael during the Middle Ages? We never hardly hear anything about them. I'm talking about the land of Israel itself. We hear about uh, Bavel, and we hear later on about France and Italy and Spain and Germany and places like that in North Africa. What about Eretz Yisrael itself? How come there are no famous Gedolim from Eretz Yisrael? It's an interesting question. Uh, when he came there, the main, there were, like, as best as I can tell, all I can ever tell you as best as I can tell, there are like two main places of Jewish scholarship going on, to whatever degree there was any Jewish scholarship going on in Israel. And it wasn't in Jerusalem. One was in uh, Tiberia, and one was in Ramla, believe it or not. That stupid town of Ramla was a major center of Gemara studies. And Sadi uh, gone as far as I can tell, went to Tiberia. Now, that would in- indicate to me uh, something very interesting. What's going on in Tiberia? That's the Bali Misora. These are people who are into Masoretic studies, you know, counting how many letters in the Torah, and the Misora Gedol, Misora Katana. Talked about it for where the Nakudas come from. You know, do you put the, the Nakudas above the letters or below the letters? We have already adopted, as everybody knows, the policy of putting the Nakudas under the letters. Everything you want to... No, let's put it this way. If you want to Torah Shabbat no Torah Shabbat thoroughly, totally. And that you would pick up in the Bali Masar, because frankly, they're the people who put together the Sefer Torahs that you and I use, the Tanakhs you and I use. We don't have a Tanakh or a Torah, a Sefer Torah, from way back when. It doesn't survive. What we use today, maybe you've heard about the Kesar Aram Tsova and that sort of thing. They come from Tiberia during this period. So that would sound to me like he was somebody who wanted to perfect his knowledge in... Um, Toshibiksav kind of things, Ivrit things. I'll use the term Haskalah, but you understand what I mean by that, you know, in, in, in the old-fashioned sense. And uh, also, he, the Arab historians say, al-Masudi, that Saadiyah, uh, you know, studied with and engaged with uh, polemicists, which means Jews who uh, debated uh, Muslims and people like that in matters of Hashkafa, theology. So Sadiqon would be interested in theology. I'll say this, I'll say it again. I'm sure he learned Gamar twenty four hours also. And I'm sure he gave Shiurim or learned by people and discussed with people when he was in Eretz Israel and in Syria. Major matters, because he was already majorly a a big uh, he was a posik by the time he was in his twenties. By that it means he had a reputation people used to write to him. But he's also interested in these non Yeshivsha type subjects. So it's just very interesting. Now, um, in uh, here, he will start, so uh, let's say now you're in the, in the 9, 10, 9, 20, that era. Here's a guy about 30, in his 30s, and he starts to write um, some works, and he'll be a big writer, write a lot of books. That's, that's the thing about side that makes him so famous. Uh, what he's going to do is... Uh, start writing like a dictionary in Hebrew. He's a dagron, the first one ever wrote anything on a dictionary in Hebrew. Notice, basically, let's put it this way. Let's not give up the Torah Shabbat Uh I don't say the Torah Shabbat should take primacy over the Torah Shabbat On the top comes Gomorrah. But underneath the Gomorrah, a Jew should know very thoroughly, you know, the 24 books of the Tanakh. Uh, and not only know it in terms of the Ivrit, which is very hard, because... Uh, you don't know, and I don't know, the meaning of all these birds and the Chumash and these animals and that kind of stuff, right? And there are a lot of words in the Tanakh. I repeat, a lot of words in the Tanakh. They're such obscure words, you don't actually know what they mean. 
Sajigon is the first guy to try to understand what those words actually mean. By that I mean, and, and write about it. And all the people will come later on to try to understand the obscure words in Tanakh. You start with Sajigon. So basically, he is the father, the origin of the study of Avrit and Diktuk, which he seems to have focused on in his 30s and afterwards in his life. Do you hear what I'm saying? When you and I, if you ever learn Diktuk or anything like that whatsoever, ask yourself the question, where'd you get the word Shvanah, Shvanah, Dagesh, you know, all that stuff. Avar, Hovel, see, all that business. Where'd it come from? It all starts with Sajigan. Can't be. Can't be only a guy living in the 900s. The first, I agree with you, it can't be, but nobody wrote about it. You know what I mean? I don't know, nobody ever heard about it. So, what are we supposed to do? As far as we know, all the stuff that gets developed later in Spain in the Golden Ages starts in, in, in Syria with, in Baghdad with Sadiqon. This means that he's famous for launching all kinds of things. So what I mean by that is the study of Hebrew as a language, which after all is God's language, the Lushan Kodesh, and the study of the meaning of the Tanakh, and especially, like I said before, the obscure words, you know, you you're cheating. You you open the art scroll. You saying, you know, you open the the the, the other translations, but they're building on earlier traditions. I'm talking about the guy who started the tradition, so it's quite a, a you know series of accomplishments. Uh, Sadigom also got involved over here in arguments against the uh, Karaites, because they're big big in Israel and elsewhere. Now the Karaim have all kind of tainas to prove that the Gemara is baloney. So you have to be able to come back. And it's not so easy to do so. Now, I'll tell you the truth. I've read the, some of I'm not the world's expert on this, I've read the arguments of the carrots, I've read the Sajigon you know, stuff. Some of it is like, eh, eh, eh. But uh, the key point is giving an answer. You know, so it's not necessarily the quality. Because you can't prove any of these things. The Tarsh B'Ksav, the Tarsh Valpeh, it's a matter of a Muna, you know. Uh, the most you can say is that you can't prove it didn't exist. But, uh, you know, more than that, it's a matter of a Uh But but the fact that he was making uh, uh, books and arguments against them was very different than the yeshivish thing, which simply ignores it. It's a little bit like today, for example. What do you do with all the Bible criticism things and all that kind of stuff against the Torah? The answer is, firm world ignores it. Like, they don't get into it. That's what it was at that time. He was the type of person that said, like, don't ignore it, or you're going to fight against it. Now, I'm not saying he's right. Could be. From the modern perspective, best thing is to ignore it. There's a, it's a, that's not an intellectualist argument, but from a social perspective, it's a very interesting way of dealing with things, which ignore. I know it sounds very reprehensible, but it doesn't matter. From a sociological perspective, from a survival perspective, a lot of these things have a shelf life of 100 years. And if you ignore it, then by the time the 100 years is over, you know, you never had to engage with it in the first place. Uh, but, you know, that's a, that's a different question. But Sajigon wasn't built that way. He said, you know, let's deal with all these issues. All I can tell you is, he's the type of guy to be interested in Hashkova questions. He reminds me a little bit of Rabbi Weinberg in there is all that. Day. Yeah, but, yeah he, would like, he liked to have Chaburis in this sort of thing. The Golden Babylonians, best as I can tell, based on what they've written and what people write about them, is they, they weren't into this at all. Just like you wouldn't have a typical Hashkova type Chabura in a regular Shiva, which actually seriously engages with modern intellectual uh, questions and challenges. That's not what a chabur is. You know, it's a, I'm not talking about just getting together to learn associate charm or their morale or something like that. I'm talking about dealing with, with the cutting-edge issues. And that's not something he's usually done. Sajigon was a different type of guy. That's what he did. 
Now, at the same time, I want to emphasize and re-emphasize, at the same time, they gave a class in Gemara and very high-level shiurim, and by the standards of the 10th century, you know, he's supposed to be one of the big lamdonim. So here you are before the Rishonim even, okay? Now, uh, what's famous, What what? eventually he moves to Baghdad. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but it makes sense that that's where the yeshivas were, and that was the main community and had the largest community probably in the world and the richest community, and uh, that's like a natural fit for him. You know, you know what I'm saying? Natural fit for him. And he lived the rest of his life in Baghdad, as far as we know. Now, when he was in Baghdad, so this like, let's say, for example, 920, and he died in 942. So the last, so in his 40s, his 50s, because he died at the age of 60. So in his 40s and 50s, he lived in Baghdad. Like from 39 years old to to, to, to 60, you know, like 40s and 50s. Uh, here, he got involved in a very interesting um, debate, which is very hard to explain. I'll tell you the truth, I've always hated it, because <laughs> I don't like math and astronomy. It's not who I am. And um, it is kind of fascinating, but it's... Uh, I've always had a blank whenever I uh, get into it, because I have this thing against... Uh, math and science stuff. Uh, it's, a, it's a failure of mine. But, uh, and this is the famous calendar dispute that emerged in the 920s. Now, um, that's with the more Rosh Hashanah, with the Molin Zulkin and all that sort of thing. Well, let me say this. I just gave you the mainline usual way of explaining things, which is that the world centered around the Babylonian Yeshivas, which are located in Baghdad, that's where all the Gaonim were, all of which is true, and they're the post six for everybody. But I also said, what was happening in Israel? The land of Israel was part of the Arab Empire. And in the 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 hundreds, 11 hundreds, 12 hundreds, until the Crusaders showed up at the end of the 10 hundreds, it was just under the Arabs, that's all. It was just under the Arabs. Now, um, life was peaceful, relatively speaking. So, how come a large Jewish community developed? Well, a large Jewish community did not develop there. What can I tell you? There was a Jewish community, and they actually kept up the old Israel... Israeli customs, for example, they read the Torah every three years, you know, not every one year, and things like that, and um, eventually, and they had their own Talmud Chachamim, you know, that kind of thing, but they somehow or other didn't get the, uh, <laughs> it's like Rodney Dangerfield, you know, they didn't get the respect, you know what I'm saying? It didn't, didn't turn into something. They only, like, ruled the roost in terms of the uh, primacy. Now, uh, I'll give you an example. It's not a fair example. Right? I want to say it up front. It's not a fair example. But you get a little bit of it like now. Today, where's the Iker Makam Torah? America or Israel? You see? And the Israelis, I'm sure, the Israeli Rashi was all looking at America like, eh, you know, maybe Lakewood, eh, like that. They're, they're the hot stuff. That's what it was at that time. It's not the same thing, but it's something like that. So there were yeshivas uh, in, uh, in uh, Israel, but they didn't get the respect. And then in the nine, early 900s, they had a young guy who uh, wanted respect. There was a big time of Chachma, apparently. His name was Aaron ben Meir. Apparently he had big yichus. I'm serious, like a Kohen going back to real Kohanim, which is very unusual. And it was uh, apparently a big time of Chacham. And uh, he wanted respect. And uh, he had gone to Baghdad, and he had uh, uh, he lived in Israel in the, nine, in the early 900s. And uh, the, the big fights there with the Karaites and all that kind of business. And I don't want to get too many details. He had visited Baghdad. He knew the people there. 
he dealt with the Sultan's uh, court, not the Sultan, the Caliph's court. The Caliph at that time was this corrupt guy, al Muqtadir or whatever, spent all the time in the harem, but you don't need to know that. Anyway, uh, and the famous incident is that he, without giving you all the details, he said Pesach is going to come out this year on this day, and um, unlike what you usually think. So usually, the way you go by the regular calendars, Pesach should come out on a Chesa Sunday. But I say this year it should come out on a Tuesday, or maybe it's the other way around. The principles and the arguments around it don't even matter. If you're interested in this subject, uh, there's a very famous, very boring, uh, 50, 100-page article by a famous Moscow from Warsaw, Chaim Bornstein, back around 1900 or something like that. It's very well known. Once when in my youth, I was stupid enough to copy the whole thing out and Xerox it and try to read through it. It was so boring for me, I couldn't do it. Um, the art school. If you're interested whatsoever, you know, wait a minute. The art school has a book. Uh, here it is. Yavim the Pumadisa. One minute. They have a very nice summary. I'll, I'll just read you. Very, it's, it's like one paragraph. It won't take long at all. I'll get a little bit of my idea. This is the famous calendar dispute. I'm reading now from the art scroll on page 296 for those who are interested in the book Yavna Pumadisa. Briefly, there is a rule that if the new moon would occur after midday on Rosh Hashanah, an extra day is added to the preceding year. This is called the Molot Zokin, the old birth of the new moon, a delayed new moon. This means that Rosh Hashanah is postponed one day. If it would have fallen on Monday, it's now postponed to Tuesday. Moreover, another rule stipulates the Rosh Hashanah is never permitted to fall on Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday. Thus, if postponing it would cause it to fall on one of these days, it's postponed one more day. The extra day or days, in such a case, are added by making Cheshman and Kislev full, in other words, 30 days instead of 29. As a consequence, Pesach and Shavuos of the preceding year are also postponed by a day or two respectively. While the calculation used by the regular Gonim took midday to mean noon, Rabbi ben Meir, that was this Rosh Hashiva who was looking for respect in Israel, I just told you about, he claimed that he had a Mesora, that the cutoff was noon plus 642 Chalakim, about 35 minutes. The divergence, you know, say no, is it 12 o'clock or, 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 or 12.35? The divergence in the fixing of the Rosh Hashanah had its ramifications even for years, whose new moon does not appear at noon. The intricacies of the calculations dictate that in certain instances, even Rosh Hashanah preceding the year having a Moleb, Zokin would be postponed. This matter would take significance in regard to Pesach during the year 922. And that's where our story takes place, when Tzadigon was like 40. And he lived already in Baghdad. The new moon of the year 924 was a Moleb Zokin, according to the accepted method which necessitated a postponement of Rosh Hashanah the preceding year, 923, from Tuesday to Thursday. As a result, Pesach 922 was also postponed two days. According to Ben Mayer, no postponement was needed. Added to the further ramifications for future years, there were major differences in the calendar between the two schools. Now that's the most dumbed-down, easy, nice version I can tell you. There's another paragraph or two, but I know it's going to bore you. It, the, 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 to understand this clearly, you'd have to read this masterful 100-page article, whatever it was, by this guy, Bornstein, which I couldn't do. 
I had a student years ago who married the daughter of somebody in England, I think it was, who wrote a dissertation on this or whatever. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, like I say, if you're a math science type of guy, just go be Mayan in the Aaron Ben Mayer, uh, Machlokis and Sadigon. And the bottom line is, the Israeli guy said, that I'm basically, guys, you know, uh, let's put it this way, uh, the Sanhedrin is back, so to speak, and just like once upon a time, the Sanhedrin in Israel, Dafkin Eretz Yisrael, was Kaveya when the holidays are, when the calendar is accepted, so I claim that right now. The Gon in Babylonia, so I guess Baloney, we've been running on a calendar ever since Hill II, you know what I mean, right? Like you and I do today, like you and I do now, and therefore we're running by the regular calendar, and we don't accept your system, and if you're bored with all this, suffice it to say that most Jews said Pesach should fall on Sunday. And this guy said, no, Pesach should fall on Tuesday. That's a big difference. And he enforced it. And he wrote around the world. He said, everybody should follow me. And the others said he followed them. And it was a terrible fight because the Arabs and the others made fun. The Karaites, they said, see, you Jews say you always have a Torah You know what you're talking about. You see this way, you're all full of it. You don't know anything. And even among yourselves, you argue, you don't even know when the holidays come out. And I don't have to tell you it's a it's a it's a chiv karis if you're reading comments on Pesach and so forth and so on. So it was just terrible. And Sadigo was one of the main guys in Bubble. Basically, the rabbis in Bubble, they you know, well, let's put it this way, they were going, but they weren't heavy, heavy hitters. But this guy knew even down was a heavy hitter, and so he wrote all these things against him and and it got really ugly, you know. A lot of personal attacks back and forth. Uh but by the time it's over Actually, we don't know how it ended. All we know is that 920s was a very controversial time. And we know by the time you get to the late 920s, I think Iron Ben Mayer died and the whole project fell away and, we, and they just continued the way we do today. Which is a good thing because one of the most important things we Jews have in common is the calendar. You take it for granted. I've said many times in speeches, we Jews have gone along for a long time without a state, without a church, and without geographical contiguity. And yet, there are certain institutions of commonality that keep us on the same page, despite our being scattered and so different from each other. And one of the main institutions of commonality that you take for granted is a common calendar. Wherever you go this week, you know, in this year, 2020, wherever you go this year, it's going to be, uh, you know, Parsha uh, Shlach this week. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, Tisha is around the corner, and everybody's going to be the same day. Now, you may be the type of dude that doesn't fast on Tisha B'Av, you don't believe in that, but we're talking about the same calendar. You, you follow? If you didn't even have the same calendar, if when I say it's Pesach, you say it's Purim, or something like that, then we simply have no uh, ability to even communicate with each other, not even to debate. So, uh, because Sadiqan played such an important role, bringing arguments and back and forth in this uh, fight, so he, he, he gained a good, uh, what's, the right, what's the right word? He got a good reputation in Baghdad, which led, eventually, when he was, uh, let's figure this out, 46 years old, that's kind of young, 928, that they said like this, we want you to be the of Surah, which was unheard of, because he wasn't from the families, you know, his last name was not Soloveitchik or Cutler or something like that, he was, he was, he was from an out group, you understand? On the other hand, it's one of these cases where Yeshiva, once in a while, will take somebody I think I'm right about this. <laughs> Take somebody, even though he's not related to anybody, just because he's the best guy. A pure merit appointment. Because he's such a big Talmud Chacham. And 
there was a lot of politics going on to this. I, 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 like I say, I'll have to double my time to go into this, and, I, and I'm, I'm in a hurry. I have a lot of things to do today. So suffice it to say that the yeshiva of Surah had gone down the tubes for a certain reason, and the Reish Galusa at that time wanted to revive the yeshiva of Surah. And the way you do it is you bring in a first-class Russian yeshiva. And he said, I'm bringing this guy in. And he was warned. Sadigon is not a guy who listens to orders. And he said, I'll take my chances. And as a result, Saadia was appointed the only outsider in all the yeshiva history that I know of in the Gonic period from not the same 10, 15 families, whatever. He's the only outsider. And he had a tumultuous time. He was there, there in other words, uh, for the last ooh, 16 years, 18 years, so 928, and he died in 942. So what's that? 14, for the last 14 years of his life, um, he was Rosh Hashiba in Surah. And uh, obviously, when a guy like him comes in, the level of the Shear is like humongous. You know, he was, he was a gone <laughs> in the modern sense of the term. He was probably the biggest Talmud Chacham of his time. Uh, remember, he didn't get it because he's a member of one of the families and knew what I learned. He got it because he, in spite of the fact that he wasn't. So here's somebody that, you know, raises the level of the Shiurim in the 14 years that he's there. But on the other hand, because he had such a strong personality, he didn't get along with the guys who appointed him, right? Because he wouldn't take orders from them. The richy rich guys say, you know, we, we made you. Uh, you're nothing without us. And, uh, you know, when we tell you do this, do this. And he wasn't built that way. He was even, they were even warned about it. And so the bottom line is, uh, they had their set of fights. There are many stories. I don't know if they're true, because some of these things sound romanticized. They wanted to kill Sadiqon. They put him in a harem. He put them in a harem. It's very possible. Jews are like that, you know? I could totally hear that the Rish Galusas would all try to kill him, and he would put them in a harem and all the rest of it. Uh, all we know is there was a time of very bitter struggle between the two factions. Eventually, peace was made. I'm not here today to go into, you know, if I was paid to do a series on the uh, fights between Sadigon and David Mezake, the uh, Reish Galusa, I would do so. But, uh, you yeah, but it's, it's a long and tedious parsha. Suffice it to say that he had his fights over there. But on the other hand, uh, like I said before, they eventually made peace. There's even a story when the Reish Galusa died and Sadigon was nice to his son, etc., etc. What we do know is that... Um, during the times that he wasn't hiding, <laughs> you know, uh, he uh, published some very significant works. I would call attention to only two or three of these, because who's got the time? Uh, I already told you before, he's the one who started Dictuk earlier in his life. He Literally, he's the one who studied, started the study of Tanakh. All the Pashanut that we have in the Middle Ages, on Chumash, for example, Rashi, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, those type of people, Redak on the Tanakh, you know, that, that sort of thing. Start to a you, you know what I am. You don't find any Tana or Mora who writes a Rashi, a commentary in the Chumash, correct? Other than in the Midrashic, you know, Michilta, Sifra, and Sifri sense. They weren't that. It's Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. It's remarkable. Uh, Sadigon, first of all, wrote a translation uh, of the Chumash into Arabic, which uh, you can get in there. I have it it's from the Musar of Cook, you know. Uh, they used to use it in Yemen. He's the first guy to understand. So let's put it this way. He's the first Arya Kaplan. <laughs> Can I use that term? Here? He's the first Arya Scroll. Um, plus, he wrote translations and Mepharshim, not only in the Chumash, which means he's trying to get it out there that the average Jew can have some access to the Tanakh. The average Jew in his time didn't know Ivrit any more than the average Jew know today, knows the Ivrit in the total absence of any translations. 
And he's putting out, shall I say, a firm translation. It's idiosyncratic. It's his way of interpreting it. Doesn't mean the others all agree with it. So what? And he translates the Chumash. He has very important uh, translations and explanations. I remember of Daniel and of Eov and the hard, the hard works of the Tanakh he gets into. So you see that this ain't the typical Rosh Hashiva. Now I want to point out, he was the Gon. He was the number one Tom Chacham his time. So imagine, and you can't imagine this, imagine if Rav Shach, in addition to being Rav Shach, also did an art scroll. It's, it doesn't allow you talking, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't do that. A Rosh Hashiva like that doesn't, doesn't do that. Uh, Sadi Gon did that. Cause Sadi, who, let me put it this way. Who's bigger Rosh Hashiva? Uh, Rav Shach or Sadigan? Of course, Sadigan, right? Uh, and yet he's writing dictated books. You can't imagine, right? You know, uh, Rachaim Shmulev is writing a book on dictated. Come on, you know. Uh, so he's, uh, he d- doesn't fit the pattern, okay? Uh, now he, by the way, he did. Did he write things on Gemara? Some in Arabic. He wrote these uh, uh, books. What's it? Sefer Mekkah or something like that. Sefer Ashtaris, I think. Which are formularies for for uh, what I would call guidance for the Basin in his time. Obviously, these are your B level students, which is most people, uh, and they need you know uh, manuals. I did say fresh stars is from him, I think, and uh, you know that sort of thing. Other Gon did the same thing. These write these short treatises in Arabic to help you, like we would say today, a guide for rabbinic practice, you know, for Basin practice. Uh, now, there's one more point, and by the way. The side you go and wrote a sitter. So obviously, and it, and, uh, it was uh, published by my favorite historian, Simcha Asaf, you know, many years ago. It's in Arabic and in Hebrew, and it's the old-fashioned Nusach. It, this is, I'm talking about a sitter before Ashkenaz existed and before Sephard existed. Right? This is the old Babylonian, I don't even know if that's the right word, uh, kind of dominating. And it's very fascinating because it's full of his own Piyutim and poems and things like this. It's around. It's from Moser of Cook. You can get, I think it's from Moser of Cook. You can get the uh, Siddur of Sadigom. Uh, it's actually a whole study by itself. Um, but again, who writes the Siddur? You know what I mean? What is he, Seligman Bear or something like that? You know, uh, Heidenheim, Redelheim. Who does that? He started a whole bunch of balls rolling. I remember it's brought down from one of the Rishonim. That Rosh going had a hard word in the Ishayo, I think, and he said, he said "I'm going to ask the Christian guy, how do you guys translate it?" You see, as if somebody tell you, say, "I want to know how to translate a pasuk." Well, I'll just go on the, on the internet and look up the Christian site. Oh, very good. I never see. I never saw it translating that way. You know what I'm saying? No, he didn't say like this. Oh, it's from a geisha source. If I can't even use it, he had this uh, interest, and openness to all kind of things. Obviously, using for the purpose of Yiddish guy. Uh, there's one more piece. Very, very important, and that is philosophy. I told you before that in the time of Sadigon, before him already, this guy, Chibi Balki, had written this book, which was very popular. It had a lot of translation in Arabic, and basically he attacked the Torah. He said the Jewish religion is full of learning. Now, the guy was Jewish, but he's one of these type of guys, you know, and he had 200 uh, stiras and kashas and tanakh and that sort of thing. Uh, and logical questions like, why would God want animal sacrifices? Real questions, real questions. And they say that it got very popular. This, this book was even taught in schools, right? Even taught in schools. Now, obviously, uh, that's hard to believe. Uh, get over it. 
this is the uh, 10th century. Uh, the Islamic world itself was going through all kinds of issues, how to reconcile the Quran with philosophy, with, with common sense and science. It's called the Mutazilites versus the Mutakalimun. And uh, the Jews were having it. Saadia, when he was a going in Babylonia, very interesting. He devoted time to writing a book to like uh, schlug up, as they say today, Chibi al-Balki, and it became bigger than just that. And this is the famous book in Munus and uh, in Arabic, in Judeo-Arabic, which means Saad Yagon started the ball rolling in the area of medieval Jewish philosophy because there's like a, a chain of five or six or seven books. They're written by big people, which became the classics of medieval Jewish philosophy, which today, which today are abandoned. A very little study. Uh, it's the Mudas Medeus Society gone. Then it was picked up in Spain with the Chavos Alvavas. And then afterwards the Kuzari. And then the Rambam's Murnavuchim. And after the Rambam, I guess, you'd have the, um, uh, let's see now, the uh, Gersanides, you know, the Melchemus uh, Hashem. And then the uh, Kazdek Kreskas, the uh, Orashem. And then uh, the uh, Sefer Ikrim from uh, Albo, who is student of Kazdek Kreskas. And that's it. These five or six or seven books, whatever I just mentioned, became the classics of medieval Jewish philosophy. And um go with the first one. And I'm going to tell you something. I am not a PhD in medieval Jewish philosophy. It's not my field. I know more than some people, but it's not my field at all. And I'll tell you something I've noticed over the years. It's very, very interesting to me. A lot of things that you think are like from the Rambam, and it becomes famous because the Rambam writes about it in the Mordevuchim or even the Mishnah Torah and place like that, are not from the Rambam at all. They're from Sadiqon. Okay? A lot of things you take as classic Maimonidean formulas, you know, God has enough for form and even a, 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 an emotion and uh, oh, lots of things about the, uh, um, what do you call it, the Cognos Olam, all those kind of things that we generally associate with Maimonides or simply that the Rambam wrote them very clearly and very well. But they're old. He didn't, he didn't start them. And uh, the first Jewish source is, 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 is Sadia. Okay? Now, Sadia's book is kind of, I have to be honest, I always find it boring. Uh, but that's because, I never saw these good translations. I mean, his style is not one that, 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 that grabs me. It's a style from the, from the 10th century, you know. And uh, it was translated in English many years ago by a well-known rabbi in Baltimore, Rabbi Rosenblatt, who used to be in the uh, Beth of that's a very large, very, very modern shul, Rabbi Rosenblatt, I'm going back 90 years now, was uh, a graduate of the JTS, but he was an Orthodox rabbi. He was an interesting uh, guy. And, uh, and he studied Arabic in Columbia University and places like that. And his claim to fame was he's going to translate Sadiqam, which he translated part of it. It's so boring. <laughs> you know it's these kind of arguments that were around once upon a time. It's very boring. At least I found it that way. But, uh, whereas the Rambam is a better writer. But that's just my personal opinion. Having said that, the token is there. Okay? I have several editions of the, uh, Amunus Videos. Obviously, in terms of the best translation, is going to be Kapach. But, uh, Kapach always wrote in two columns, uh, I don't know. I just didn't get into it that way. A couple years ago, they came out with the kudos. That's why I always like, you know me, the old uh, Ibn Tibbin translation, which is kind of cool. And you could get it. It's called Sefer Minus Medeus, Menukah Mavor. 
And, you know, it's a, it's a very clear print and all the rest of it. I, I picked it up in Israel. If you're into that sort of thing. Uh, I even was once in Israel, and I picked up a copy of part of it for, with the He'oris of the Nazar, you know, who was uh, the Rav Cook's Talmud over there. I don't know, you know, it didn't, it didn't do anything for me. Uh, but, 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 basically, he's trying to slug up Chivil Balki. And the, and the introduction is very famous. He says, I walked by a river. It's a marshal. I walked by a river. I saw a guy drowning. I looked around, people walking back and forth. Nobody's trying to help the person drowning. Even though I'm not the best swimmer, I said, I'm going to help him. I'll do my best. And I jumped in and tried to pull the guy out and prevent him from drowning. And the drowner, he says, is the Jew in the, in the drowning in the sea of doubt, of Suffolk, theological doubt. And I'm trying to help him out with the emunas v'deus, with the proper way of uh, thinking over there. And here he's the first one to introduce in a written way, you know, the Eno de Musa Guf, Eno Guf, and what's the reason for the Torah, and what's the, what are the sources of truth? He says, philosophy is the source of truth, the Torah is the source of truth, you know, and they can't contradict each other, obviously, which is a fancy way of saying the Torah has to make philosophical sense. That doesn't mean that, that Sadia was, you know, totally a philosopher, and like we'd say today, a left-winger, and something like that, because he was too wide... He was a Renaissance man, you know. He's too wide to be, in my opinion, to be classified within one group. But he, he was very open to all different types. Then he knew it. I'll say it again. He's very yeshivish at the same time, but at the same time not. And so I'm describing somebody that we don't have a different. Uh, we don't. We don't have people like this. Okay, not that I can think of anyway. We don't have people like this, and uh, and and therefore, his uh, successor didn't know what to do with him exactly. It's very interesting. In Middle Ages, he was very controversial figure. I've seen certain Ashkenazic writers that they really dissed him and so forth. Um, on the other hand, uh, he was one of the Gonim. <laughs> you know what I mean? That you can't take away. He was one of the biggest Russian Shivas of all time. I'll say it again. He's one of the biggest Russian Shivas of all time. And so, you end up with a person who is a uh, main person on the Shalshalas HaGonim, as far as the Tarsha Balpeg goes. His Talmudim were the big people in the 900s in the 900s, you can, you know, sort of, that, that's very significant, and it's big Baal Halacha, and a Posek, and all that sort of thing. Uh, on the other hand, the Maskilim all claim him, because they say he's the founder of philosophy, and of Diktuk, and of Ivrit, and of Tanakh, and all this kind of stuff, which is true. So Sajigon left a legacy, which, uh, which only appeared like in Spain, you know what I mean? To, to some degree, you had the big rabbis in Spain kind of had this uh, approach to them, or some of them did anyway. Uh, and his students are the ones who picked up the, uh, uh, you know, what's his name, uh, uh, Dunash Ben Labrat, ended up in Spain being a big poet and all that kind of stuff. So you end up with a person that left a very rich legacy for the Judaism. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, his books are not read today. The uh, non from world isn't interested in anything Jewish. The from world is still very much Gemar, Gemar, Gemar oriented. And frankly, arguments from nine from the nine hundreds don't work so well in many ways for people like us who live in the twenty first century, not the twentieth century, the twenty first century. So kind of old. But on the other hand, if uh, maybe I'm not giving him a, a fair deal, uh, you know, I'd be interested if anybody out there is, is reading the Amunis Vedeus to say for Hanif Hamivchar Amunis Vedeus, the best of the Amunis and the Deus. But I'll tell you again. I've seen many times um, that things that the later ones saw it's from the Rambam. First of all, I notice a lot of things the Rambam come from the Chos Halvavos. That's number one. 
And number two, then I saw the Chobos of Ovos come from the side of Yigon. Just, just an observation on my part. Uh, what else do I want to say? That, well, anyway, that's enough for now. Uh, I guess give you a little bit of an idea who he is. Uh, and with that, I bid you a good day. I hope we'll get some more sponsors by the time we get to the end of the week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.